So at the risk of turning off my loyal listeners, I, I have some, right? I'm going to use this moment to do a little PR. I, Jeff Perlman, have started a Substack. It's called Jeff Perlman's Journalism Yang Yang, and it'll be a weekly breakdown of journalism, media, my thoughts on writing, chats with other writers, on and on and on. Oh, and it's 100% free. I just feel like in these times where media is too often under attack, I want to focus on the unique awesomeness of journalism at its best. So if you don't mind, visit perlman.substack.com and check it out. It costs nothing to subscribe, and you'll be making a poor, lonely Jewish writer a wee bit happier. This week's first edition features my rankings of the all-time top 50 best sports books, a Q&A with author Jonathan Eig, a spotlight on a fantastic college journalist, the story of one of my biggest journalism fuck-ups, and a good amount more. It's all there at perlman.substack.com. Thank you. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Paul Gutierrez, my former Sports Illustrated colleague, ESPN.com Las Vegas Raiders beat writer, and co-author of a new book, If These Walls Could Talk, Stories from the Raiders' Sideline, Locker Room, and Press Box. This is episode number 229, Let's sing some Yang. Dad, I left for college and nobody here has ever heard of you. All right, Paul. Thanks for joining me here. I feel like you and I, we've known each other many, many moons starting in the in the mean hallways of Sports Illustrated. <laughs> the, in the quarter the, of a century. Yeah. yeah, quarter of a century through the Vince Ferragamo years, through the newspaper years, through the different years. And um, I was going over your uh, your LinkedIn page. How important do you view um, social media as not just something you do because maybe you enjoy it or you do because eh, you're kind of supposed to, but how much of being a beat writer these days is, do you have to do social media? Is it dependent on your job? Are they insistent? You need to be here, 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 and here on these platforms. Yeah. It's, it's a necessary evil. Uh, you know, there's, I, I still, and I feel young. I'm 51 now, obviously. Um, I, I don't feel 51, but I don't know what 51 is supposed to feel like. Right. But but I still kind of there's times when I pine for the days of, OK, I'm covering the Dodgers tonight. I've got an 18 inch gamer and a 12 inch notebook and that's it. You know, uh, there's no tweeting. There's no posting to Facebook. There's no posting, you know, taking pictures and putting it on Instagram, um, not complaining. But that's just where the job is gone. And it's definitely as a beat writer, it's it's a major part of, of what you have to do, because you hate to acknowledge that, that so much of things is about clicks, but it is about interest and it's about keeping people on your page to read things because, you know, I write for ESPN.com. I'm not writing for a newspaper anymore. Even newspapers, they need that interaction. They need people to be on their website for longer periods of time so they can justify selling ad space. Right. Cause at the end of the day, just like newspapers, that, that's what it's all about. So to have that social media footprint, um, that is kind of the, in the DNA of being a, 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 any journalist, let alone a sports journalist anymore. So it is, it's a necessary evil to me. And yet you can have some fun with it. Um, you got to ward off a lot of the haters. Uh, I, I think I lost count of how many people I blocked was over 200, but that was a couple of years ago. So it, it's, it's interesting. And there's a weird satisfaction that comes with how many followers you have, or at least having some interaction with people as long as they keep it tame. Wait, so do you actually, do you view it as part of your job? not just to be on Twitter as an example, but do you need to engage with readers? Do you feel like you are actually supposed to use this medium to engage with readers? 
Um, define supposed to, because I, I, I don't think, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm, I have to, but it doesn't hurt. And it's actually kind of fun because it is, again, as long as it's kept civil, I'm always up for a good discussion and, and uh, you know, to, to talk about things with people, even if they don't agree, but with how toxic uh, things have become in, uh, over the past uh, few years, anyways, it's, it's, it, it gets harder and harder. So you do see more of a result of you. If you interact with people on social media, and um, it's civil, then you'll see your, your footprint grow and um, more people will want to come on and see what's going on. And, and, you know, every, everybody's got their own platform now um, from somebody who has 10 followers to somebody who's got 200,000 to a million. doesn't mean anybody's voice is better or more important than anybody else, but it is interesting how the world has, has shrunk a little bit with this. Here's a memory I have. You and I were working at sports illustrated. It was probably, I don't know, 97, 98. And you were in your office one day with your desktop computer, blown away by this thing. And I remember being like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You were able to play the theme from like chips on your you were downloading 80s music theme songs like, oh, my God, the chips theme, the different strokes theme, the facts of life theme. That is how yeah. <laughs> dark ages it was back then. Yeah, whether it was chips or a five-second clip from Star Wars or, oh, my Lord, look, uh, MTV.com has the top 10 videos of the week where you can actually watch the entire video back when MTV played videos. By the time I left in October of 98, SI didn't even have the, the Mac uh, desktop computers yet. That's how long ago it was. But But to be able to play music or little clips from movies and instead of just those flying toasters as a screensaver, that to me was like, wow, this is technology. This is where we're going. It was crazy. What's your beef with the flying toasters? I thought those are nope, no, no beef. I just, I have like, it's kind of like flashbacks because the, the flying toasters made a certain noise and it just always reminded me of the computers asleep. There's nobody around. You could hear the rain falling outside. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of like weird flashback things. Wait, and also remember we had, so we had Nexus Lexus, but it was only in the library and you had to wait online or make a, an appointment to use the one desktop with Lexus Nexus. Yeah. And it's funny because that was what that's the pre the precursor to Google. You know, you just got to make sure you knew the, the formula, how to find certain topics, uh, you know, within so many words or the headline has to contain this or. Yeah, that was nuts because you had to write your name on the list. And if you missed the call, if you're sitting at your desk and, and the next person called you and you missed it, you went to the end of the line and you're just frustrated and throwing things. And because that was the only real, you know, as far as finding actual articles, uh, you know, the, the internet was in its infancy then. So you couldn't really find anything online that way. Um, so yeah, Nexus Lexus was, and, and remember, this was only to verify what a senior writer had already written right? to, to give it a red check or whatever. So it, it's, it's, it's wild and it's crazy. And yet there's still a lot of those search techniques and, and verifying techniques I use to this day. Well, I was going to ask you, we definitely live in a sloppier age of journalism than when you and I were coming along. That is a, a fact where you and I, for people who don't know, when we came up at Sports Illustrated, you would check a story and you would check every word in the story, every single word in the story. And if it was Derek Jeter, you circle it and you better make sure Derek Jeter is spelled correctly. Even though you know it's spelled correctly, you better make sure. Right. If you're hitting 301, it can't be 302. Do you feel like that has actually had an impact on the way you approach a story or... Uh, check your own material or have the times and kind of the sloppiness of the modern era made you just like everyone else to a certain degree. And I don't mean that negatively. It just kind of happens where a quick Google search. Okay. It's verified. No, definitely more meticulous and not, not to put myself on a higher level or anything, but yeah, I, I, I want to 
rise above the sloppiness that's out there. If for nothing else, then just because, you know, I want to be a professional, I want to be a pro, I want to be true. I want to act like a pro. I want to be treated like a pro. So if I'm writing something, that's my name on it. Uh, I'm representing my company. Um, I, I want to be as factually correct as possible. So I always go back and I make the jokes. Too. I'm like, oh, that's a red check. Ooh, that's not quite a red check. We got to find two sources to make it a red check and things like that. So you look for official websites. You look for, it, it's kind of like being on Facebook and seeing the meme that your crazy cousin or your crazy uncle put out. Oh, well, there's something, you know, Joe Biden and, and then, you know, the pizza gate and all that stuff. Where did you find that? Where did you see right. that? Is that a legitimate news source? Well, now that they're actually taking down legitimate, you know, MSM, mainstream media, well, now nothing means anything to anybody uh, of that ilk, right? So for me to take it back to the sports thing, I, you know, I want to make sure this is an official website. And, and, you know, it took a while for like baseball reference to actually be recognized as, yeah, th this is gospel or, uh, you know, profootball.com. Same thing. It's, it's interesting to, to try to check these things down, run them down, make sure they all make sense and make sure they're legitimate because one website, you know, might just be some crazy dude in his in his, in his closet, you know, coming up with crazy things to, you know, get clicks or just, you know, hey, I, I thought of this, but no, you, it does. That experience has definitely made me want to be more meticulous. And, and I, I'll tell people to this day that are a lot younger in the industry, I'm like, look, we legitimately had to print out a story that came in and anything in that story that was a verifiable fact, you got the, the yellow highlighter, you highlighted it, and then you found at least two sources to verify that Derek Jeter did, did spell it D-E-R-E-K capital j-e-t-e-r he's number two uh you know he was gonna go to michigan and here's where he's from you know, yeah you legitimately had to find all those things and, and at the si library we had hard copies of everything too so I remember having to stand in line at the copy machine to make copies to put it in the envelope to say hey this is where i found it one of the saddest things i learned recently i just learned last week is the sports illustrated no longer has an office really gone, gone. when did that happen like a week and a half or two weeks ago oh wow i didn't know that i, I thought they were still down by uh Nope. Is it the Condé Nast building? No, they're gone. They were down by the trade center, by the old trade center, by Grand yeah, Zero. The, the old trade center. And um, no, they got They have no offices, which kind of blew my mind, actually. Yeah, kind of blew my mind. I didn't know that. We're breaking news here on Two Riders. <laughs> that's no, that's that's depressing. Yeah, it's crazy. I yeah. still want to go into the 18th floor of the Time and Life building and just walk around and look and see who's sitting in my old office. It even still exists, but yeah. wow, that's nuts. And that Sports Illustrated Library to me was the greatest place on the on on the planet. So for people who wouldn't know, and most wouldn't. Back in the day when we were at SI, and we'll get off this topic, but there was, um, they had a library and it was, among other things, they had just rows and rows and rows of clip files. So if you were interested in J.R. Richard, you pull out the J.R. Richard folder. If you were interested yeah. in Marcus Allen, you pull out the Marcus Allen folder and you could, it was articles from everywhere and it could be hundreds of thousands of articles on certain subjects, Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan. I just love that place. And now it's gone. Yeah. And the, that's what's nuts. I wonder where it all is because I, I distinctly remember. And the cool thing about that was actually having it in your hands. Mm -hmm. You know, you you would go in there, you'd pull out the article. You weren't looking at a computer screen. You weren't, you know, scrolling through your, your phone. You had the actual article, the yellowed <laughs> newspaper article in your hands. And you had to be careful with that thing in case it, it crumbled and then it's gone because there was no other record of of those things, you know. Um you know, now that it's all gone, I guess, and, and there's a statute of limitations, there may have been a couple of UNLV media guys that may have, uh, you know, fallen off a truck along the way. I was just thinking there was a <laughs> there was a guy from my hometown named Dave Fleming who pitched for the Mariners. I don't know if Dave Fleming's folder actually ever made it back. To this <laughs> <laughs> it was wild because, he, again, and then beyond that, right outside in that hallway, it had every every SI issue imaginable. And I know that's where we you and I both 
uh, dug around a lot looking for catching up with candidates too, just to see who was the most random person there. You know, I know we have, we've had a lot of fun over the years with Vince Ferragamo, but I'm like, you know, I got to write about world be free. And yeah. he told me that he made Michael Jordan money with his jump shot. So it was interesting to catch up with cats like that. It was pretty awesome. Former colleague of ours briefly named Jennifer Wolf. I always thought it had the most interesting rise because she, she ended up writing for people magazine for a long time, but she transferred from Miami Dade community college to Dartmouth, which I always thought right. was a huge, weird jump. I didn't realize you started as a community college student. You started at Barstow yeah. Community College near your home in Barstow, California. You're a kid. It's 1988. You're a Barstow Community College. You are as far away from writing for Sports Illustrated or covering the Raiders for ESPN as one can humanly be. You're living at home, I imagine. Like you're, you're 18 years old. Do you have an idea in your head like one day I am going to do blank or are you just some kind of lost 18 year old trying to figure out what to do in life? Yeah, that first year out of high school was kind of wandering through the wilderness. I, I I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to get there. It wasn't like I was, you know, graduated high school and said, yeah, I'm going to work at Sports Illustrated one day. I'm going to work at the LA Times. I'll be at ESPN. None of that even really crossed my mind. But here's the thing. They're, right at the very beginning there, you said, you know, I'm 18. Covering the Raiders is the furthest thing from my mind. That's actually kind of how I got my start because – I always liked sports journalism. I had had a subscription to SI since I was 13 years old, right? Not that that makes me special or anything. A lot of a lot of kids have that. But when I graduated high school, and I don't even know if I ever told you this story, I was actually supposed to go to UNLV straight out of high school on a band scholarship to go play my trumpet. My high school band instructor had a job lined up for me in some lounge lizard band in 1988 Vegas. I would have been some 18-year-old kid playing his trumpet and everything. A couple things were in, were in play, though, was... I liked band. I didn't love it enough to make it a career because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I knew that had I gone right away, I would have majored in band or music and, and that would have been it. But I didn't want that. I was very immature. Um, oh, yeah. And still had a girlfriend at home, too. So let me just let me just stay home and figure this out. And I took journalism at Barstow Community College. Um, I was the only student in the class. So it was myself and the instructor. And once Wait, every two weeks. You were yeah. actually, you were literally, the, there was one student in the journalism class at Barstow Community College. And that was me for the fall semester of 88. Yes. <laughs> and awesome. it was the instructor, Dr. Richard Reeve, the most uh, conservative white male you could ever imagine is teaching this class. And, and at this point, I'm, I'm kind of political. You know, I'm agnostic when it comes to politics at this point. And he's teaching the class. I'm learning. We put together a, a four page newspaper every two weeks. And this is the old school days, Jeff, where you had to like print it out, get the on the wax paper, you know, roll it out, roll it on the thing, shoot it. Do, and we did this just the two of us. And I remember one of the big issues was when Bush beat Dukakis in that election, because that was one of the big issues of the day. And we came out once every two weeks. So while I'm there. Um, I'm stringing for my hometown paper because I had never taken a journalism class in my life because in high school, my elective was always banned. So at this point, I'm figuring, OK, this is what I want to do. I like it. My sports editor at my hometown uh, newspaper, the Barstow Desert Dispatch, Larry Maestas, um, and he gave me my big break, really, if that's what you want to call it, because the Raiders were playing in L.A. still. They're playing the Seattle Seahawks and the backup center, Grant Fiesel, was a Barstow High School grad. So he's like, you know what? Go to the Raider game this weekend bring back a feature on Grant Fiesel. So I went and thankfully another writer from the dispatch was there too, because when I met Grant in the locker room after the game, I was just, I looked like Cindy Brady on the TV when the red light went on. I just, uh, you know, just staring. I scared to death, 18 years old, I have no idea what I'm doing. And Dave Castro was the other writer's name. And, and he conducted the interview basically on my behalf. And then I went back and I wrote something and, and what I turned in uh, looked nothing like what ended up in the paper, but that's fine. And that's kind of where it went. So 
from 88 through 91, I was going to four to five LA Raider games a year. I was going to like three or four Ram games a year because they were in LA. I was going to angel games. I was going to Dodger games. Uh, I went to LA Kings games on the, you know, Barstow desert dispatch. And I was a photographer at the time as well. So when I was writing for that hometown paper, I, I got paid a dollar an inch per copy that appeared in the paper and $5 per photo. So I wasn't making a lot of money, but for an 18 year old kid, the experience paid for itself. And by that point, you know, in school, I kind of took a year off. I only took that journalism class. Then another guy came in. Uh, he was a much older gentleman. And we kind of, you know, we had fun putting out a school paper again, once every two weeks. And um, Barstow College then brought baseball back. So that made me actually take a full load of classes and, and get serious about school. And by the time I graduated my associate's degree, I was like, okay, now it's time to go to UNLV. So I transferred to UNLV and, um, it's right after the glory years. I'm there for J.R. Ryder, but I'm not there for, for Larry and Stacy and Greg and Tark and those guys. But I, I end up you know, meeting them and interviewing them later in life. But um, so by the time I get there, I only have one semester of like general ed stuff after that, because I've done so much in Barstow and at Barstow College. Everything was just elective from then on out and, you know, become the sports editor of the school paper, do TV at the, the school's TV station. And it just kind of falls into place, you know, whereas I, did I have a plan where I wrote it down and had all these goals? No. But in the back of my mind, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. And this was the path I had to take to get there. What was it about journalism that did it for you? There's a part of me that just, it feels like a puzzle. You're just putting things together and telling stories. I was always a, a big, I wasn't a storyteller, but I loved reading about stories. So if I could, you know, flip that script a little bit and start telling stories and, 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 and uh, talk, telling these tales from people that, that, really kind of felt like they had no voice that that was kind of what was appealing to me about it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't even a Woodward and Bernstein thing because I honestly, at that point, I thought that stuff was boring. You know, I'm more interested in that kind of stuff now. Right. Uh, when I was a kid, I just, I liked the thought of telling stories. Well, you mentioned, uh, I think both of our, one of our favorite athletes of all time, which is the immortal, illustrious J.R. Ryder, who <laughs> for people who might not know, he uh, played at UNLV, very erratic, uh, one of my favorite characters from my last book, my Laker book, I went to knock on his, the door of his house without telling him I was coming and yeah. he was not happy to see me. You wrote a piece for the LA Times, actually, about trying to track down J.R. Ryder called Taken for a Rider in December 9th, yeah. 2000. Subhead was, it's not easy to keep up with Isaiah, even for an old college buddy. And uh, <laughs> it's a really funny piece. It's just basically him blowing you off. You're like 45 minutes later, still no Jay. So I called him on his yeah. cell phone. No answer. I left a message 30 minutes later, an hour and 15 minutes after leaving the arena. I called his cell phone again. He answered this time saying he got held up and they just dropped off his mom. But since he got such a late start in the day, he said he didn't need to take a nap. He was on his way to the Hilton. Let me call my man at the barbershop to make sure he can see me now since I, I was supposed to be there earlier, Jay said. I asked him where the barbershop was. I'll call you on your cell, Jay insisted. I'll be there at the hotel in 15 minutes. So we went to the Hilton Sports Bar for a bite to eat, knowing that Karma would have Ryder show up just as our food arrived. Not only did Karma not make an appearance, neither did Ryder. And it's a really funny story. Well, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated. Like guys like that, like J.R. Ryder, love or hate, enjoy or like want nothing to ever do with again. To me with J.R., the most interesting thing about him was his greatest strength, I thought was also his biggest weakness, was that he couldn't cut the ties to home. You know, he was going to keep it real and he was going to be there for his boys and for his family and everything. But at the cost of what? You're a multimillionaire. You're, you're a top five NBA draft pick. And then within a couple of years, you're getting popped on a street corner, you know, shooting dice. 
you get pulled over and you've got a Coke can with, with weed residue in it. And it's like, you know, no judgments whatsoever, but it was one of those things you're like, you know, can, can we figure this out? And, and that was, that story was like the second or third time where I'd been taken for a rider, so to speak, because uh, it was the same thing uh, in Portland, Oregon. I went with Phil Taylor uh, because Rick Riley and Michael Silver had both been trying to do a big story on, on JR when he was with the Trailblazers. And he told both of them, the only way I'm ever doing a story with Sports Illustrated is if Paul Gutierrez is involved. I'm like, oh, cool. I get to fly out to Portland. <laughs> so I went out there with Phil Taylor this time. And it was the same thing. And this is pre-cell phones, pre-email, anything like that. I'm literally sitting in my airport hotel in Portland all day long, waiting for the phone to ring, staring at it, making sure that it works, you know, and, and he never called. So when that happened in LA, I was like, you know, this, this is enough. And, and that story, Jeff, essentially really is the email that I sent to my boss. And my boss calls me back and says, Hey, this is the story. Just take some of the anger out of it. <laughs> and that's what it is. And my, my wife, who was my fiance at the time, she's the one that actually suggested just send that into your boss and see what they say. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's never going to work. But, but, you know, she knew. And the editor said, again, take some of the anger out of it. And that's the story. Now, when I went to Staples Center that night and saw him, because I'm, I'm one of those guys, if I'm going to write something critical, I, I need to be there. Uh-huh. Uh, he wasn't happy. And I, and I couldn't blame him. He said the one thing that, that, that uh, he didn't appreciate was that I mentioned his mom in the article because his mom blew me off that night as well. Because the mom was mad. Donna Ryder was mad because Phil Jackson benched him that night. So part of the story was if, if I couldn't get him to sit still, uh, at least Phil could because he benched him for the night. And, um, you know, we were supposed to talk to Donna that day, too. And, and she blew me off. So I wrote in the story that, you know, like mother, like son kind of a thing as far as getting blown off by the family. So he didn't like that. And I, and I had got that. I understood that it was kind of a cheap shot, but you know, it, it, it's what it was. And maybe that was part of the anger that I wasn't able to take out of the story. <laughs> Have you seen J.R. Ryder in the 20 years since that's heard? Um, random here and there. And here's the most random part. Uh, two years ago at the height of the Antonio Brown Raiders trauma, I get sent to Winnipeg to cover a Raiders preseason game. And I'm in an Uber on my way from my hotel to Winnipeg Stadium, uh, the house that Dieter Brock built is the way I actually phrased it. <laughs> very nice, very nice. And, and uh, on the way there, I get this random text and I look, J.R. Ryder. So I look at it and he's like, hey, man, just checking in. What's up, bro? Uh, does, does Keelan Dawes have a good shot at, at making the Raider team this year? I'm like, oh, okay, Keelan's from Alameda, JR's from Alameda. Yeah, you know, it depends if they keep five or six receivers. He's a big star on hard knocks, but, but we'll see. I mean, he's, he's, he's in the running, you know, but Antonio Brown, this is his show. And he writes back, yeah, no, you know, his dad and I went to high school together. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's how old we are now. Because JR is one year younger than me, like literally one year and a day younger than me. <laughs> and wow. uh, I'm like, he's, that's when it really hit me as to where we are in this industry. I'm like, JR Riders, you know, this guy on the Raiders, his dad was like high school buddies with JR Riders, so. That's when it really blew my mind. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Roman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine. And you know, our daughter's at college, our son's in bed. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Oh, baby, let's do it. Really? I love it when you talk throwback sports merchandise to me. And you're going to love this. RoyalRetros.com has the best in USFL, CFL, and XFL gear, from t-shirts to sweatshirts to jerseys. It's really, really, really hot. Now walk around in your throwback Kelvin Bryant Philadelphia Stars jersey and pretend you're running for a touchdown. What if Emmett hears? I'm willing to take that risk. So you were covering a team. You cover the Raiders, obviously. And you were covering them when they were featured on Hard Knocks. And 
I literally haven't thought of the name Keelan Doss since watching <laughs> Hard Knocks, right? Yeah. And Keelan Doss was the star of Hard Knocks where everybody watching it at home, Bobo's like me, we were like, oh, this guy, Keelan Doss, he's going to be a star. And then I think he didn't, he either didn't make the team or was on the press. And we were like, wait, what? That's, that's a horrible decision. What a horrible decision. <laughs> and we're judging everything, everything through the lens of Hard Knocks, who we're going to like, who we're going to root for, who's a jerk, blah, yes. blah, blah. When you're covering a team that is on hard knocks, are you basically like, this is all bullshit. People have no idea what's really going on. Or do you feel like that lens is a, is a viable lens to judge what things are happening? No, it's not a viable lens because they're like, you just, you hit on it. They're telling you who to root for. They're telling you what a storyline is. You know, that whole camp, that was Richie Incognito's first camp. That to me was more interesting than anything I saw in hard knocks because at that point, nobody knew what to expect from Richie Incognito after being away from the game, after being arrested at a funeral home, trying to, you know, get his father's body and, and, and assaulting his grandmother's house and things like that. That to me, but Hard Knocks didn't touch it. And you also knew that that Mike Mayock, the general manager, had final say really on what was going to appear on TV. So you were getting a sanitized version. And then as a beat writer, another interesting thing is, you sit back with kind of bated breath and watch that episode that night because you have to write about the episode for the website and you pray that you're not learning anything new because if you learn something new, then you miss something. And thankfully at the end of that run, we didn't really learn anything new of importance other than Keelan Doss was a cool story, but he's not making this team, but that it's very formulaic. If you've watched hard knocks over the years long enough, you know, it's very formulaic. There's, Here's the undrafted rookie who's going to be the, the tearjerker. Here's somebody who, law, who grew up with a rough childhood. Here's the star doing their wacky off-the-field things. I mean, it's very, very formulaic. Even the one with the Cowboys that just came on. I was like, I was watching. I was like, you know what? I, I watched this three years ago with the Browns yeah. or whatever. It's the same formula over and over again. But that doesn't mean that it's bad. If anything, as a beat writer, it kind of got in the way of just trying to do your daily job because there were so many cameras around. You knew that you were getting a sanitized version of what guys were seeing at the podium because they knew they were going to be on hard knocks. Um, and, you know, there were times when I would do TV hits for SportsCenter. And, you know, I'm, I'm nervous enough just standing there looking in, you know, trying not to be Cindy Brady looking in the camera. And then all of a sudden I see these other cameras off to the side focusing in on me, too, just in case Hard Knocks wants to use it. Uh, so you're like, oh, I'm not only talking to my sports center people live. I could be on Hard Knocks this weekend. So it, it was kind of a mind trip. Keelan Doss's lifetime statistics, 11 catches, 133 yards. That's a good game. Yeah, it's a good game. And he's a great guy and he's a cool guy. But to me, again, it just all came around to wow, these weird worlds of mine just kind of crashing together where it was, you know, Keelan Doss, the Raiders, J.R. Ryder, UNLV, Alameda. My first internship was at the Oakland Tribune. My first big story was a story on J.R. Ryder after the Timberwolves took him number five overall in 93. And it was just, just blown away. And you're like, well, I guess if you do this long enough, you're going to see those types of things. So this offseason, obviously a huge story um, was Carl Nassib becoming the first openly gay player in the NFL. And he was going to be, Importantly, an openly gay player who the Raiders weren't going to cut because he's obviously a very good NFL player. When that breaks, when he announces on Instagram that he's openly gay, I've been actually impressed in a weird way how not big the story has been. Like, I thought this was going to be a huge story, and it's turned out to be kind of a mess story. When it first happened, how do you process it? What do you do? And are you thinking at the time, I'm going to be writing about this story all season? Yeah. First thing I think is when that comes out and I get an email from an editor with a link to, to Carl's page, I'm like, okay, they, they, they went my night, you know, because I'm writing a lot. I'm making calls. I'm shooting texts uh, from Mark Davis to John Gruden to get a reaction. 
not because it's anything. I mean, it is out of the ordinary in terms of journalism, right? I mean, it's breaking news. So, you know, when breaking news happens, everything else goes on the back burner and you just chase the story. Um, still trying to chase a one-on-one with him, but you're right. It, it has kind of become a back burner story. And then like, I had to remind myself on Monday night football, when I was writing my, my gamer to then, you know, Carl Nassib had the game ceiling strip sack of Lamar Jackson that maybe I should put Carl Nassib comma the NFL's first openly gay active player, because that was history too. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, as a human, as a normal, you know, fairly liberal person, it's not a big deal to me. I mean, the guy, that's who he is. That's what he, that's, that's his deal. So it's not that important. Nobody asks, as one of my editors, somebody, nobody asks, uh, you know, for example, Derek Carr, hey, what's it like to be a straight player in the NFL? But because that is the quote unquote norm. So for Carl Nassib to, to not be that big of a story, I think is, is refreshing. And I think for him, it's relieving too, because not only is he living his truth, but he's, he shed all this weight off him. And you see it kind of translating onto the football field where last year, I mean, he was a healthy scratch numerous times after, after signing a huge contract. So when, when, when that happens, when, when an editor <laughs> sends you a link, you, you know that you better just kind of settle in because the news is going to come. Sports Center is going to want something. You, know, you want that exclusive one-on-one and, and you just kind of roll with it from there. Interesting thought here. So if this were 30 years ago, NFL locker rooms were much more accessible. Players were much more accessible. There was no COVID. I feel like some reporter would have gotten in the Raiders locker room, some defensive lineman from Tulsa or wherever, or could be California, whatever, would be like, yeah, as long as that guy doesn't stare at my dick, we're okay. Or some horrible comment. You know what I mean? Like there would be some horrible comment. Someone else would say, look, it's against the Bible. He's a sinner. It's fine if he's on my team, but I don't want to have to be in the room. Like, that kind of stuff would exist, right? Like, there's no doubt about it. In 1988, this story, it's not a smooth story. And I wonder, like, there have to be guys like that still who at least think that. Oh, sure. Is it at all your job to try to find that? Or is it just not the way it works these days? I don't think it's the way it works these days. Now, if somebody were to come up and pull you aside and whisper that in your ear as a beat writer, well, I guess you, you have to kind of chase that news too, right? That, hey, this is a potential thing. As, as a human, you know it's wrong. But you're supposed to be objective and just as a beat writer, just tell the story and, and just report things out. Um, yeah, I mean, we saw it actually when, when Magic Johnson announced that he was HIV positive, right? There was all the rumors. I mean, Carl Malone was one of the biggest ones that that hinted at it, right? You know, Isaiah Thomas kind of hinted at it too, that there was something else going on there. But in this day and age, I, I think there's a, a lot of people keep their thoughts to themselves, not on a lot of things, but but on things like this for fear of being canceled as well. So do you know what you just said? Do I, do I believe that there's one or two or a pocket full of guys in that locker room that are like, oh, no, that, that, that goes against scripture. That that's this, and, you know, whatever he wants to do. That's fine. Absolutely. And that's why it was interesting. And he handled it pretty well was Derek Carr, who's as religious as it gets. Right. I mean, the, he, he thought about retiring after his rookie year to be a pastor, uh, to be a preacher. And uh, he was the first guy that everybody thought about. Well, what's Derek going to say? He's the face of the franchise. He's the quarterback. He's the franchise guy. Um, and it took him a couple of days to come out with a statement, but he, he welcomed him. He opened his arms and said, look, the main goal is to, to win a championship here. So that I think is different from what would have happened 30 plus years ago. Are guys more savvy now? Is that number one? Like more than anything, are they just more savvy? I think if they're not more savvy, they have more PR people around them to tell them how, what to say and what to do and what and probably more importantly, what not to say and what not to do. Right. Wait, so how do you as a reporter it just seems like the NFL is really hard. Like the NFL strikes me as the hardest sport to cover in that the access to players isn't great. 
and it's a huge locker room on and on and on. And just like, is it still possible to break through and get something unique from a Derek Carr or a Josh Jacobs or one of these guys like to actually sit down with them and have Derek Carr open up to you about whatever his abusive uncle or I'm making that up, but you know, something that happened from yeah. long ago. Uh, again, that all just comes back to, to prior relationships because I, I, I do feel for like beat writers that have come on the scene in the middle of a pandemic when we have no locker room access. I mean, like for, with the Raiders, for example, they're doing the best they can, I suppose. But, you know, we'll put in a list. So who do you guys want to speak to this week? Oh, I want X, Y and Z. OK, well, we'll get X and Y. And the only way we'll get them is at a podium. And you're not going to ask those type of questions in a, in a press conference setting right. for fear of shutting it down for fear of being the jackass that asked that question. Those are the questions you have in a locker room. We just walk up and you're just shooting the breeze, right? You're just chopping it up. So that makes it harder. Now, having been there prior to that and having a couple phone numbers and, and things like that, or at least having the trust of the players, you know, I was able to, you know, I don't know if, if break is the right story, the right word here or not, but I got Max Crosby, who's probably the most, the hottest and most popular Raider right now at the time, defensive end. And I was able to write that, you know, because he gave it to me because he trusted me and, and I got him on the telephone that he had been in rehab a year ago. He spent he spent a couple months in rehab and nobody knew about it. And um, to be able to tell that story, again, it goes back to just developing trust. Right. And, and if these guys don't want their story told, you're not they're not going to tell you. So, you know, that going in, um, you know, we went into it. Just the thought was, hey, tell me about this lava orange porch that you're driving around Vegas. And it turns into, yeah, I was actually in rehab and I feel much better. I'm, I'm eating cleaner. Uh, I'm clean with, you know, alcohol and things like that. And then when you got Darren Waller, who's also a recovering addict himself on the roster, it turns into a much bigger story. So again, long answer to your short question, but I think a lot of it, you, you break these types of things in an NFL locker room with prior uh, relationships and with your own uh, reputation, really. And if PR for that team trusts you to kind of not give it to you on a silver platter, but at least put you in a position to succeed because with no open locker rooms, it's really tough. Well, it's interesting. The phrase like PR trusts you is almost like a double-edged sword, isn't it? Like you, because you want them to feel that you're a responsible reporter, but if they trust you too, but you don't want them to think you're a mouthpiece for the team. You don't want to carry the water either, but you want to be fair, you know? And it's, that's, that's always kind of been the thing because there's, you know, I have a really good relationship with Mark Davis and has he done everything that I've always agreed with? No, not necessarily. Um, but do I respect what he's done? Yeah, I do. Probably more so than a lot of the beat writers. And, and there've been times where fans have either turned on me and said, Oh, you're a hater. But then in the next time, Oh, you're, you're, you carry their water. I'm like, Oh, I guess I'm doing my job. If, if I'm seen on both ends of the, of the spectrum here. So it, it is tough because, you know, I have a, good relationships, professional relationships with a lot of people in the organization. Mark Davis himself told me that all he cared about was being treated fairly. He said, you know what, when we deserve to get our asses kicked, you kick our ass. When we deserve to be praised, you praise us. So I think that to me has been the key throughout the whole relationship with the Raiders. You've covered this team for a long time and you were covering them when they were the Oakland Raiders and you find out they're moving. And, um, you know, we always talk about, oh, a team moving and with the stadium and where the player is going to live and blah, blah, blah. But it seems like being a reporter <laughs> and, oh yeah, by the way, the team you cover is not going to be in the same city anymore. seems like a pretty freaking giant thing to lay on someone. How does one, I don't know, how does one adjust to life of covering a team in a different city? How does that affect you? How does it affect the job? 
Uh, the fact that it took them three years to move after they announced was a strange thing because not only are you covering a team on the move, you're covering a team with three lame duck seasons in Oakland. And you're wondering if the people in Oakland are going to tear the place down, you know, the same way it happened in Cleveland, the way it happened in Houston. But you know, even in Baltimore, when the Colts went to Indianapolis, they left in the middle of the night. The Raiders played three seasons in Oakland before actually moving after saying they were going to move. So that was a, a, a tricky part. On a personal level for me, it was tricky because, again, all these weird worlds of mine colliding in one place. I went to UNLV, so I know Vegas fairly well. I worked at the Review Journal for one year, 98, 99. I covered Sean Marion when he was up on the Rebels. Um, You know, a lot of family, a lot of friends still live in Vegas. My parents are in Barstow, two and a half hours away, uh, you know, outside of Nevada, Southern California. So when that all happens and and you get the job offer, look, you got to move. You got to be there on the ground when it happens. You know, you, you do what you can. So during the football season, I'm, I'm living in a, my parents borrowed RV. So I'm in an RV park in Las Vegas, uh, right off the strip, halfway between the practice facility in Henderson and Allegiant Stadium right off the strip. So it's, it's, it's been interesting. And when it's 115 degrees and you're living in that metal tube of an RV, it's not fun. But it is kind of cool to be there and to see it all kind of come to fruition. Because, again, I, that, that corner where the stadium's built, it was just a dirt lot. And I'm pretty sure I might've partied there back in the nineties, you know, for a fraternity event or something, because it's just, the city is different, but yeah, it, it's tough being away from the family. They understand it. And, and you know, it's kind of like, I'm not going to equate myself with a player or anything, but you know, we were talking to KJ Wright the other day and you know, his family's still up in Seattle and he's like, I got to go for six months. Daddy's got to go do his thing. So I was like, okay, I'll kind of wrap my mind around it that way, I suppose, but it's different covering a team on the move. Um, and especially when it's moving to a different state and it's uh, going to a city where, you know, fairly intimately was a trip. And it's, it's definitely different. I feel like I can't let this one go for a minute. You live in your parents' RV in, in, in Las Vegas. Wait, I do. What is the RV like? What is the inside of the RV like? It's a 30 footer. Uh, <laughs> that's all I can really, all I know is I got to empty the tanks out. Uh, you know, you, you only do number one in the RV. You don't do number two because there's public restrooms and you don't want that smell in there or whatever, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's got everything you need. It's got two TVs in there. It's got a couch. It's got a refrigerator, a stove, a microwave, uh, a full-size bed in the back. So it's got all the creature comforts you need. But like I said, when it's 110, 115 degrees, it's not fun. Uh, oh yeah. My parents also bought an extra AC unit to stick in there for those days too. But the weather's changed a little bit over the past couple of weeks where the AC actually turns off on its own because it reaches a certain temperature, which is good. It's not just blasting nonstop, but it's a, it's a trip because it's like camping, you know? And I remember at the time, the former Raider president, Mark Bedane, when he heard that I was living in, a, in an RV at an RV park, he wrote me, what are you, Cousin Eddie? You know, Cousin Eddie from, you know, Randy Quaid from Vegas Vacation. I'm like, yeah, how you like my spread? But uh, it's, it's, it's unique and, uh, and it's cool because, you know, my parents come up every other weekend or so, and I get to see them more now than I have for the past 20 years. So it's, it's a labor of love. I'll put it that way, Jeff. Wait, you're saying I don't understand about the Raiders. Maybe you can explain to me. I feel like, so I grew up a Jet fan, just as an example. If tomorrow the Jets move to Tulsa, Oklahoma, New York fans are not going to stick Jet fans. They're going to be like, go screw yourselves. Right. Goodbye, traitors, blah, blah, blah. The Raiders are, are, they're obviously Oakland, LA, back to Oakland. They're there a long time. They're a California team. They're a Northern California team. And then they leave. And maybe I'm wrong here. It seems like their fan base was just like, all right, and just kind of follow them along and doesn't seem to have a great amount of resentment. There's some, there's, there's pockets of it. There's a lot, especially in the Bay Area, because 
and for one thing, and for you know, and for nothing else, it's the second time they left the Bay Area. So you got a lot of fans that really were like done uh, in the Bay Area. Otherwise, you got other fans. I mean, and that's the thing with Raider fans and, and Raider Nation is it, it really is kind of a countrywide, if not a worldwide kind of phenomenon. I saw it when I covered them when they went to England. I mean, the fan groups in England were insane. So it's because it's been such a vagabond franchise for so long and it's got fan bases everywhere. And then on top of that, Tulsa, Oklahoma is not Las Vegas. Las Vegas is kind of a, a suburb of L.A. anyways. And one of the hugest Raider fan bases is in L.A., from the 13 seasons they spent there from 82 to 94. So Vegas makes all the sense in the world. Now, had they gone to say San Antonio, that would have been a head scratch. Cause I don't know if they would have had a built-in fan base. They do in Vegas because Vegas being a suburb of LA. Um, it's going to be interesting though, to see as, as the season goes on when they play like the Packers, the Cowboys, uh, even the bears this season, because those teams have notable fan bases that, that travel with the franchise. So the first practice game, the first, you know, the opener on Monday night football, it was a show. It was an experience. It wasn't just a football game. I mean, when you've got Carlos Santana playing a halftime concert of a preseason game, and then for the Monday night opener, you got Two Short and Ice Cube, which was brilliant in my opinion, because Two Short's from Oakland, Ice Cube is from LA, and they're yeah. doing the halftime show, and you got 65,000 fans screaming and, and chanting and yelling Two Short's favorite word, which I'm sure you know from Blow the Whistle. It's insane, and it's all an event. So, there are a lot of hurt feelings, especially in the Bay Area, but but it's 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 interesting uh, being in Vegas because it's so many. It's a melting pot of people from so many different places around the country. You wrote a book that came out recently called If These Walls Could Talk, stories from the Raiders sideline, locker room and press box. You did it with Lincoln Kennedy. I've never been like, oh, I can't wait to write a book with, with somebody. I always <laughs> just think oh, I kind of like being my own boss. And I like and I know like when yeah. you write a book, when it's Lincoln Kennedy and Paul Gutierrez, it means. Lincoln Kennedy talks to you and you basically do the writing. Is it an enjoyable thing to do or is it kind of hellish? Um, yes. <laughs> That's the answer is yes. I mean, it is enjoyable, but it's also hellish because you got deadlines, right? And, and you know that more than anybody. If Look, I got to have X amount of words done by this date. And if I don't, and oh yeah, beyond that, I've got my regular job to take care of. And I better not let you know my job suffer because I'm, you know, hanging out with Lincoln Kennedy talking about the 2000 AFC championship game and, and Tony Siragusa belly flopping on top of Rich Gannon, you know, but, or, or how do I flip that and do some sort of a story for ESPN.com so that I'm not necessarily double dipping, but just, you know, making the most of my sources. And with this, you're right. It's like the first book I did with Tommy Davis on the Dodgers back in 2004. Uh, a lot of, you know, that book was entirely written in his voice. And it's just a lot of transcribing. And it's, it's like, okay, I doing the research, what is important? You know, when you're talking to Lincoln, he played with the Raiders from 96 to 03. So what happened in that time period? And then you just kind of, it's like putting the quarter in, you know, pulling, you know, you're in a slot machine, just pull it and see what comes up and whatever memories come up. And then you go back to your old SI fact-checking days and you're like, you know what, Link, that actually didn't happen then. This happened there. And you were playing this position. Let me get this old game book and look at it. So that a lot of that stuff actually came into play there, too. Um, it wasn't hellish other than just there was just the, the amount of transcribing that had to happen yeah. um, and telling it in his voice. And then at, at a certain point, you know, his the way he talks, you know, his his uh, voice rhythms. Uh, some of the certain things he'll say, and then you're able to just kind of fill in blanks that way. And of course, make sure that he's OK with everything that you've written. Um, that was interesting was doing all the, the transcribing and making sure that it sounded like him and getting his permission. But then the cool thing about it was being able to write a chapter just on myself in my travel. And like we talked about earlier, going from 
uh, Barstow High to Barstow College to UNLV to, you know, also, you know, getting scholarships from the California Chicano News Media Association to make sure that I represented in that area as well, being a minority male, a Latino male in the industry too. So, and, and being a baseball writer back in the day and things like that. So, um, hellish just from the, the, the load that comes in and doing a book in the middle of a pandemic when everything was via Zoom. Uh, we had Q&As from everyone from Mark Davis uh, down to the equipment guy, Bobby, to Rich Gannon opening up about the Super Bowl, which I had never heard him talking that depth about it before, to Steve Wisniewski talking about training camp pranks. You know, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. On a scale of one to 10, how much do you hate transcribing? Uh, 12. It's the worst. <laughs> the worst part of <laughs> the job. Worst. Somebody's easy to transcribe and they, they speak slow and in complete sentence is fine. But if they're just rambling all over the place and starting and stopping, it's, it's, uh, it's terrible. I've had moments transcribing where I would say to my thing, will you shut up? Like to the person <laughs> to, to say, stop jabbering and just get to the point. Just. You know, it's funny. I say that. I say that when people are asking questions and I'm like, if they're just jabbering and jabbering, I used to get pissed off. And I'm like, you know, no, it's, he's taking up time. That person's taking up time. So there's less. Oh, that I have to yes. Take. Yeah. Yeah. hundred thousand percent. Yeah. Or I like when you're transcribing and maybe like someone's daughter comes in the room and they're asking if they can borrow the car and you're like, oh, this is great. This is actually a vacation from transcribing. Exactly. That's more on the day to day job because on the book, you know, we had a very specific, you know, we're sitting there talking with Jim Otto and, um, and it's kind of the same thing. A lot of the things kind of trailed off, but we're talking to Jim Otto, you know, and he's an offensive lineman and he meant the world to, to Lincoln Kennedy. So of course he was the first guy we, we interviewed, right. uh, you know, we got Tom Flores who, you know, to me, was kind of like my, my dad's dad. He kind of reminded me of my, he's a grandfatherly figure to me. And, and, you know, he finally banged that drum long and hard enough and, and he's in the pro football hall of fame, which again, thankful and, and that he's here to enjoy and things like that but to be able to talk to him and then he went off script a little bit and talked about social justice issues in the u.s and i'm like whoa this is great you know he's at an age now where he doesn't care and he's just going to tell you how he feels so that was cool too i, I gotta ask this because i'm required by the podcast rules what is the angriest a subject has ever been at you uh eric carroll standing butt naked in the visitors clubhouse at anaheim stadium yelling at me telling me that i do yellow journalism and then walking off again naked into the showers to tell the other dodgers to not talk to me because i do yellow journalism uh and it was because i was doing a story in 2001 on like some anniversary of the replacement players and uh, mike bush having to warm up with the dodgers by himself in the outfield because he had to throw the ball against the outfield wall pick it up take 10 steps back throw it against the wall pick it up because Brad Butler Piazza and Eric Caros, you know, ostracized him. And in 2001, Caros was the only guy left. So, and, and to his, you know, to be fair to Eric, uh, I did phrase this question because he's like, he didn't want to talk. He didn't want to talk. What's that? That's yellow journals. And that's nothing. I said, okay, well, if you don't give me a quote, Eric, I'm going to have to use your quotes from back then. And I didn't mean it as a threat. I was actually kind of giving him a heads up that you don't talk to me. Don't be surprised when you pick up the time, the LA times in the next few days. And you see me quoting you because those are old quotes. I wasn't threatening him at all, but that's what set him off. And, and that was that was probably the, the point to where other beat writers came around and I said, hey, man, you need us to stick around. Is something going to happen? I'm like, eh, nothing's going to happen, you know. So that was the angriest. And that carried on for a couple of years. Even when he was done playing, he was broadcasting and, and might not have been my finest moment. But um, I was covering a Dodger game again, 18 inch gamer, 12 inch notebook. And um he criticized the Dodgers for thinking that he Sop Choi was going to, I know we're going inside baseball. I know you love oh, this, but he yeah. criticized the Dodgers for thinking that he Sop Choi was going to be an everyday first baseman. 
And as as Caro said on the broadcast at the time, he saw Troy couldn't even be the everyday first baseman for the Cubs. So why do they think he's going to do it for them? So I go, that's interesting. And I write it as a dot, dot, dot in my notebook. That's interesting because he's saying that Hesop Choi can't be an everyday first baseman. Eric Carroll's couldn't beat out Hesop Choi as a for everyday first baseman because they were both on the Cubs at the same time. So the next day at Dodger Stadium, I'm sitting in the dining room again, how the world just kind of comes around with Vinny Bonsignor, who now covers the Raiders for yeah. uh, the Review Journal. He and I are sitting there eating, covering a Raider game. And his eyes pop open and I turn around and I feel EK looming over me. And I turn and go, hey, EK, how's it going? Oh, I saw what you wrote today. Um, I couldn't beat him out to be the everyday first baseman because if I did, then the Cubs would have had to pick up my contract. Then he starts to walk. He turns and real dramatically, not that you care. And he slams the dining room door and walks out. And I'm like, that was epic. So that made my dot, dot, dot of my notebook the next day, too. Now, two things. Number one, I love that we're the only two people, maybe in the world, <laughs> but definitely in America, talking about he stopped Choi right now. He stopped Choi. <laughs> Um, if you saw Eric Harris now, would that hostility still exist, do you think? Uh, probably not. I mean, so much has happened in the world and in his world and my world. I mean, I to me, it is what it is. I, I'm not carrying any hostility. Now, if he was still mad about it, I, I couldn't tell you. He probably doesn't even remember what I'm talking about, uh, to tell you the truth. Right. Uh, I know what happened. I know I was in my early 30s when it happened, and it still was one of those things. Because, you know, when you ask a question like that, what's the maddest or what's the most interesting or something like that, that to me is always right up there at the top because, um, you know, it happened, it was a, a years long kind of a thing that happened. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. And, and you have these things. I mean, it's not a John Rocker tale by any means, but it was, it was interesting for me. And again, for he Choi to be in the middle of it, that just makes it even better. I'm going to change the name of this yeah. podcast, uh, two writers thing. <laughs> well, Paul, I appreciate you doing this. I, uh, obviously a big admirer of your career and your work and you as a person and, uh, it's great. You do great, 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 great work. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. I want to thank today's guest, Paul Gutierrez, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Paul on Twitter at P Gutierrez ESPN. Read his work at ESPN.com and purchase If These Walls Could Talk, stories from the Raiders sideline, locker room and press box, wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Slinging Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.